0: Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast, number 60. Almost halfway to 100. Never good at math. My name is Dan Holtzman. I'm your host. We have a great guest for number 60, all the way from the East Coast, Paris, the hip-hop juggler. Before we talk to Paris, though, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA, International Jugglers Association. I hope everyone had a great time at the festival in Springfield, Massachusetts. I am so sorry I missed it, but I promise I'll be there next year in Indiana when David Kane is festival director. So I'll see you all next year. Hey, let's thank me by buying one of my products. You can go to Amazon.com and buy my book called 1001 Tips on Practicing, Perfecting, and Performing Your Act for jugglers and other variety artists. Available at Amazon.com. Or buy one of my toys at either Ringdama.com or ZingToys.com. Interested in some coaching? Go to Braindrizzles.com. Is my personal coaching website enough about me enough preamble enough brouhaha let's drop everything and listen to paris the hip-hop juggler welcome to drop everything podcast number 60 paris the hip-hop juggler welcome paris
1: hey what's going on
0: now you're an east coast guy right you're an east coast
1: yeah new york city harlem born and bred
0: Born and bred. Now, you've been out to California, though. Are you uh, is there a rivalry I should know about between East Coast and West Coast that I don't know about?
1: Nah, actually, it kind of works out great because some people think I look like Tupac. So me going to the West Coast, I get a whole lot more love than the average New Yorker.
0: Do people still think about Tupac? Wasn't that about uh, is he still relevant?
1: He's still relevant. And if you go to certain places, they think Tupac's still alive, especially like there, were, there was a whole thing about Elvis still being alive back in the 1980s. Sure. Like white people were like, oh, this is alive. And black people are like, nah, Elvis is dead. Well, now if you go to a black neighborhood in L.A., they go, hey, Tupac's still alive. And what
0: do yeah. you think, What's the strategy? You think it was a career move? Why would they think he's still alive?
1: Because of all that
0: music that dropped.
1: you know. <laughs> right, right, right. And he always talked about death. They talked about baking his death. So, yeah. <laughs> there's
0: also that uh, hologram that appeared at a music festival. Coachella. Coachella. That was. Uh, I thought that was going to be the start of a whole revolution of all these performers coming back from the dead. And, you know, all the live performers being phased out. Because that I'm was an amazing uh, thing. No, Me too. But that was amazing. And a lot of the concert goers thought it was real
1: yeah i I would be toast if uh, holograms of uh, of Francis Bren started getting hired instead of me.
0: <laughs> exactly. I know. That would be uh, I know we were going to hire you, but we gave this guy Rastelli. and uh, yeah. All I have to pay is the digital rights. And uh, Now did you grow up on rap music? Was that was that uh, the music you listened to?
1: Yeah. With hip-hop being born in New York City? And me growing up in the 80s, I was full in the thick of it. So when someone thinks of, say, the glory days of 80s music, they might think of, you know, Bon Jovi and (laughs) Aerosmith. But actually, I think Run DMC and LL Cool J and how much I want to be a part of that, where it wasn't uncommon to walk down the street and hear people rapping on the corner. When I was a kid, you know, we had a school play and the thing was based on rap. And all the kids in the play,
0: rap. Like, let's say between rap and hip hop. Hip hop is, is rap a part of hip hop?
1: Good question, and actually a lot of people don't know that. So when people think hip hop, on the mainstream level, they pretty much think of rap music, and that's because uh, it's so easily scaled. You know what I mean? If I was to do a juggling performance, somebody have to physically see me perform, unless of course YouTube, but music on the other hand, that, gets spread throughout the world infinite number of times over years, et cetera. But actually hip hop is a culture. Hip hop is, uh, you know, it, it started in the Bronx when there was poverty in the black neighborhoods, there was unequal funding, music programs being cut from schools. So you have to make something out of what you don't have. And when something's taken away from you, you're forced to be creative. So a bunch of people on the corner decided, Hey, let's take this turntable and, uh, let's see what we can do with that. And then they started playing the music and then they started scratching because mm-hmm. that was new. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, being, uh, being the competitors that they are, people started competing. Where can you take this? So then you have these beats being played, but there's a part of the music that's called the break. And that's when the singer is not singing, but it's just the instrumental playing. So it's how do I extend the break? So then they realized that if you take the record and physically, you know, circle around a certain number of times, you can sort of rewind it. This kind of thing that you can do and you can continue to do that to physically loop the track and extend the break. So during the break, people started dancing to it, hence break dancing was you hmm. dance during the break of the song. So hip hop is culture. It's it's the music, it's the rap music, it's the dance, it's the attitude, it's graffiti, and all of that all of that was spearheaded
0: right here in New York City. Now there's something called beat juggling. Is that cuz sometimes I look up juggling on YouTube. And there's like beat juggling. Is that a, is that a rap thing? It uh, sounds term?
1: like a vegan thing to me. But um, beat juggling, not so sure uh, what <laughs> that is. Maybe I got some stuff up. But all, all I have in my head is somebody right now with like tights promoting veganism, talking about juggling beats and eating them. Sorry.
0: <laughs> no, it was something like I sometimes I look up juggling just randomly, and I found this thing beat juggling where they're somehow manipulating the music. Maybe it's not a common thing. Now, is this also, is it B-boying? Is that part of a hip-hop culture, or is that something? Yeah, that's part of the whole, so a break
1: originally was called the B-boy, hmm. and uh, yeah, that's that's part of it all. I'll be more than happy to give anybody a tour who comes to New York, and you'll see the Graffiti Hall of Fame, and can stop by uh, hip-hop, where hip-hop started, and And uh, it started uh, particularly in one building, and now that's a city landmark. It has a landmark status. It's in the Bronx. I'll be more than happy to give them that tour.
0: And how did you get the name Paris the Hip Hop Juggler? Is that something you gave yourself or somebody gave you that name? So
1: the name Paris is my birth name. I had a sister who was real into Greek mythology. Her name's Penelope. Mm. And... um, she was in high school, and my mom had this vision. I want all my kids' names to start with the letter P. So there was Penelope, who we called Penny, Pascal, after the mathematician, Purnell, named after a guy from a TV show in the 70s that my mom liked, I have no idea what that is, and then there was me, so what do you do? So she came up with some names, my mom came up with names, and my father just went along with anything she said. From what I've been told was it was the most awful list of names you could possibly have. My name couldn't be Peter or Paul. But the names that came through were awful. So then my sister said, all right, I'm going to go back to the drawing board. And she came up with the name Paris. And my mom liked it, approved. And Paris.
0: It's a cool name. It's classy.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a stage name. Very often people ask, what's my real name? And I'm like, okay. Or Paris, you know, how did you get that stage name? And so I was was born with it. And they think I'm joking. And that's actually not my stage name. So originally, I've always been just Paris, you know, so I never, I never needed a last name publicly because I've always been the only Paris in school or the only Paris at, you know, on campus or the only Paris in the show. But then I decided to become a professional juggler. I was working in an office after college for three years, decided to become a professional juggler after that and I couldn't go by the name Paris. Uh, whenever you Google Paris, for some reason, there's all kinds of nonsense about France. I don't know why, sure. but- Sure, Paris um,
0: Hilton too comes to mind. Uh, Not so much
1: anymore, but back in 2007, yeah. (laughs) And uh, So I said, I gotta come up with something. And originally it was like Harlem Juggler, but then of course I couldn't, if I moved, that's a problem. So then I was like, what have I ever been called? And I've never had a nickname. No, everybody's called me Paris because it sounds like a nickname. Then I thought deeply like, who has called me something else? And then I was looking at old footage of me juggling because I needed something to show that I do have skill and I need to present it. And there's a video of me when I was 14 years old on the Today Show on NBC, and Al Roker goes, ladies and gentlemen, hip hop's first juggler, Mm. hip hop juggler, and I go, ha, that's (laughs) it. I am the hip hop juggler. And hiphopjuggler.com is available, and the rest is history.
0: Now, I know there's a lot of different communities. Like I have a lot of friends who are Asian, they work in the Asian community, and uh, the Asian community likes to hire Asian performers. Is there sort of a black African-American circuit for variety or, or does the black community have a very low feeling about variety performance and juggling? What's what's your community take on juggling and what you do?
1: Sometimes I can tap into it, but for the most part, it's more of a youth thing. So me being the hip hop juggler means that the young will be happy to see me. And in right. a lot of programs where they're trying to get young people to care about something or trying to get the young people to like something, some entertainment that they bring in. They go, ha, this guy has to be the guy. And they watch my videos and they go, yeah. Yeah, so with that, of course, hip-hop just being mainly a black thing in the early 80s to becoming more mainstream, now it's just... With young people now, it's just a part of their lives. They grew up with it, you know, they mm-hmm. they know Big In Tupac, even though they're never, you know, they weren't alive when they were alive and they know this stuff. Like your doctor's probably listening to Jay Z on his way to work or something like that. With that being said, I can market myself as someone who's the one who can break through. Gotcha. And that transcends any sort of, generally speaking, location, background, ethnicity, religion, et cetera. I mean, they all understand hip hop and kind of have an idea of what I wanna bring to the table. And uh, when they're looking for, say, a juggler, they're hoping that they get somebody better than what they've seen at their last kid's birthday party. So that opens up a lot of space for me to impress. As long as I'm not anything like that guy, and I walk in and they're expecting somebody with you know, a weird sort of outfit reminiscent sure. of a clown, They walk, I walk in and I'm showing super style and come in, listen, come in with rap music playing and they see this tiny black guy. They go, wait a minute. I guess I'll pay attention.
0: (laughs) Well, I think it's good to sort of fit what you're selling. So like you go in there, you're the hip hop juggler. You know, you go in there, you got some attitude. You're also called the juggler with swag. And I had to ask, I I think I have my definition of swag, but what do you consider swag? Because that's another one of your titles is the juggler with swag. What's swag to you?
1: With with hip-hop being a culture and me growing up in that culture, my whole style is hip-hop approved. So that means I'm always wearing the proper sneakers. They're always fresh and clean. The outfit, I can wear my outfit to Martin Luther King Boulevard and get respect wearing that. Now, <laughs> you know, I could I could wear my outfit in a rap video and get respect wearing that. Gotcha. Now, that's a higher standard than, say, a lot of people might have in terms of you know what they feel is okay to wear on stage. But for me, I feel like if Jay-Z doesn't nod with approval, then I don't know. But with that being said, it took me a while to come up with my current uh, setup with what I wear now. And it took me about a year to figure it out. But it's been, what, five years strong of rocking rocking my, uh, my current getup. And I was just recently in a reggaeton video, and I looked in the comments, and... It's got 160 million views, and now one of the comments is making
0: fun of my outfit. Right, so, I'm hey. hating on the juggler, like, who's that corny juggler? How did he get in this video?
1: Yeah, thank goodness. Probably after this podcast, somebody will go on there and say, hey, that corny juggler, man, that outfit, yuck. But,
0: uh, but they'll be talking about me. so <laughs> <laughs> I'm not exactly, I don't know if I have swag. I got, uh, I don't know.
1: Yeah, but the thing, the thing that makes things a little bit different for me is that it's not just a character. It's not just a, a gimmick. Like, I sure. actually, I live this, you know what I mean? So I'm the hip-hop juggler not because I looked up on a global marketing course that I took that had suggested that I do that. It's because it's a reflection of who I am and my train of thought.
0: Well, that's the best way to do it. That way it's natural, it's organic, you're not faking anything. Exactly. How'd you get into juggling was juggling part of your upbringing was there someone in your family what was your first experience in discovering juggling
1: oh man i got introduced to circus first so i was a bit of a rough kid growing up i would play in the playground and what's now considered parkour i would do a lot of that stuff you know i was a daredevil as a kid and i also had trouble in school i would get into fights and things like that and uh the, the bar was set a whole lot lower where I grew up due to just the violence and all the other stuff that was going on, you know, playing in the playground. Was, there were crack bottles on the, uh, and crack vials in the playgrounds, and we're all desensitized to that stuff. So what you had was a general morale being brought down, and there were lots of programs that would try to come into the community and sort of elevate things. And one of those programs was the Big Apple Circus, And what they did was they had an outreach program in the school where I went to elementary school. They had an active school program that was open to the public. There was a program that was embedded into the junior high school in that building where you can take classes during the day. So me being nine, I saw my first circus there where the kids would put on a show at the end of the day, and it would be a Harlem circus. Uh, the program was free. They never charged admission. They never charged a fee to take the classes, and it was twice a week. So i uh, you know, I remember one time I was on detention, and I snuck outside, and I saw in my school gym, it turned into a circus training program. So I begged my mom saying, hey, you know, uh, can, I, can I join this program? And she said, yeah, only if you behave and stop getting into fights. So I said, all right. And she put me in the program and I joined. What the Biannapple Circus had was this was not a baby program. They had the top of the line equipment, juggling, tumbling, mini tramp, trapeze, uh, gymnastic rings, and with lots of the top professional staff teaching in this program, for free. And what you'd have is a gym filled with 30, 40 kids on unicycles and all this other stuff. And I was thrilled. And what I learned about myself was that. All this supposed delinquency was just me, just just trying to find some excitement, some some excitement, and I couldn't put it in a proper way. So when I joined the circus program, I was getting that rush. So instead of say doing dangerous things like doing you know unsupervised parkour in a park or doing flips uh, on my bed or doing something even more dangerous like uh, like hanging out with uh, with gangs and stuff like that. I learned that I got that rush, that same rush that I was going for, by going into that program. So instead of over there someone telling me that when I do a flip, I can't do a flip, they'll say, hey, you can do a flip, but point your toes next time. Or, you know, br- keep your arms straight next time. And I'm hearing from a professional. And that amount of respect really got me. And yeah, I, uh, I did not need to cause any trouble again. And, um, I came in originally as an acrobat. Uh, juggling was for nerds, it was lame. <laughs> juggling was for clowns, and clowns are lame. That's sure. what I thought. Okay. So I came in as an acrobat, and I was doing tumbling, and mostly Mini Tramp, and uh, the Big Apple Circus, because I was so small, especially for my size, with a lot of what they saw as you know talent, they put me on TV a lot. The local news channel doing interviews and stuff like that. And that got me exposure to just being a professional, just in general, mm-hmm. and I guess, um. I guess with me being a child model before that, I got some experience with the camera anyway, having a, a little modeling career before that. But uh, by year three, they got a new juggling teacher. His name's Russell Davis. IJA wrote a thing saying best jugglers you've never heard of and he's one of them. Hmm. And uh, he said, all right, I'm gonna teach juggling. And they, we were going, well, juggling's for clowns. He's like, I'm not a clown. Well, 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 I don't wanna wear weird shoes. You can wear whatever you want. Can we play our rap music? Yeah, sure. So now we're hooked on juggling. And from there, that's where juggling became my main thing.
0: Now, did you ever look at it at that time and say, this is the path I'm on, this is the path I'm gonna look at for my career? When did that start?
1: Juggling as a career, yeah, it was actually quite early. It was, um, I started juggling when I was 12 and I excelled very fast, you know. Back, now it's not a big deal, but learning five balls within your first year of juggling was a big deal in nineteen ninety
0: five. Still a and big deal. That's a that's a good accomplishment.
1: It's big now, but it's not to the point where where you know everybody everybody in juggling stops and says, watch this guy. Yeah. You yeah. Know?
0: Especially at that um, age. Yeah.
1: Was. Back then it was. And yeah. um, what happened was I was excelling farther than any other student in that program. And by then I was in the school program. By then I had become old enough to go to junior high school. So then not only was I eligible for the after-school program where I had been going to before, but I was also eligible for the school program and the school program that the Bay Apple Circus had. It was embedded inside of a junior high school. So you take your math, your English, your science, et cetera. But then it was also performing arts school where you majored in performing arts. So there was drama, singing, music, dance. But then also another performing arts option was circus. And that was run by our Big Apple Circus. So during school, I would take two hours of circus per day and be graded on it, which meant that the amount of focus toward what we were learning was huge. And from there, I just I really took off fast and juggling where I was still tumbling, still riding a unicycle but juggling was clearly my focus. And to to keep me kind of understanding, of, or, or to keep me from plateauing, what Russell Davis, my instructor did, was he started sending me IJA tapes to take home. He had IJA tapes and he had me watch juniors competitions and seniors competitions. And he had he had 1988, he had 1989, and from there I would watch the rest. You know, I'd watch the Spinney Brothers, and I'd watch uh, the Passing Zone. I would watch Jay Gilligan as a junior, and I would watch uh, Casey Bamer and Cindy Marvel. I would always look to aspire that because I've always seen myself as becoming a professional juggler at that point. Now, when you're a kid and say that you want to do something that's not a doctor or a lawyer or something that's has you sitting in an office and you tell an adult, they instantly tell you, uh, you shouldn't do that. You should do something more stable. So for years I lied and said, I wanted to be a dentist. But then I knew for a fact I had no interest in that. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to juggle.
0: That reminds me of a Tai Tojo. Uh, He, I think he started out wanting to be a dentist when he was a kid. And then, uh, the juggling bug hit him and he became, of course, one of the best jugglers in the world. But I don't really see you as a dentist per se.
1: Uh, no, not at all. Yeah, my my dentist actually harasses me regularly when I show up.
0: Oh, yeah? Should be us. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm one of those fellows that that builds up a lot of tartar, so they always tend to uh, have a have a hard time chis- chiseling my teeth. Uh, off. I never thought of, of myself as a as a real job kind of guy. Did you ever have any real jobs?
1: Yeah. So. um when I was 15, after doing so many juggling gigs, I wanted to see what it was like to actually work a real life job. So I got a job in an office doing like, working as an office assistant or something like that. Sure. And for me, that was fun. The paychecks were tiny compared to juggling. I just remember being 12 and getting my first gig with the Be Apple Circus and it was in their ring. It was a special event. It was a five-minute performance with a bunch of other kids. And afterward, I get a 20 paycheck. And I look at that $25 paycheck, and I'm like, I can get used to this. (laughs) So then, at the end of the year, I started, and this is my first year of juggling still. I started to get a few more gigs, and finally I got my first $100 gig. And I was just like, wow. And I had a choice, you know. I could get those uh, those new Grant Hill sneakers that came out just the week before and be the first guy in class to stunt in school with the fancy sneakers, or I could spend that hundred and get some juggling clubs. And I looked, and then I took that hundred, and I went downtown to the duvet store, and I bought some juggling clubs. And then from there, it was clear, my thinking, my priorities were juggling.
0: how did you start your career then? Did you start, uh, so you started at 12 and 15. Did you actually, were you out doing gigs at that point? Or were you?
1: I was doing gigs on a small scale. It was, uh. School vacations, you know, this event wants to hire me for this thing, and you know, fifty dollars, seventy-five dollars, hundred dollars here and there. Juggling became a didn't become a serious career again until much later because uh, when I finished high school, I wanted to juggle as a career, but I felt like I needed a little bit more time to get my set up, to get myself set up. So I went to college. And I was not focused on college. I was clearly not there for the right reasons. During that time, I also, I was born with scoliosis. It's where the spine is crooked. And my spine continued to get crooked as I grew older to the point where in freshman year of college, it was clear I needed to get surgery. And what I thought, because I was so used to checking my body out to do whatever it was that I wanted, that the body isn't allowed to do, flips and unicycle and all this other stuff, aerials. And then I thought after surgery, two weeks later, start juggling, quit college, etc. But then what happened was I didn't take into account that two surgeries on my spine and a surgery on my ribs, including putting metal rods in it and all that, that wiped me out and I couldn't juggle for a minimum two years Wow. and i didn't really get back on the strength of juggling until three years later so while i was there i was like crap i can't really move uh <laughs> i guess i will take this school thing seriously and school became college became juggling so that meant the energy that i put towards juggling because by then i was five clubs seven balls etc but the energy that i put towards juggling that now was 100 percent in school And then I started excelling in school. So when you excel in school, you're supposed to get a job based on your major. That's basically what I did. I got myself a corporate job, and I was working at a very bland office for about, I think, three years. I was doing, uh, what? I was doing software support for a payroll systems company.
0: What was your major? Did you major in computer engineering, or?
1: I I I was a management of information systems major so
0: that sounds exciting uh, okay
1: oh man yeah audiences clap every time (laughs) exactly for that i did that and uh three years yeah i was good i was good at the job you know what i mean Uh, i was good at it it's really hard to go to work doing something so what is in your mind passionless if you used to do something that you lived and breathed so for me you know performing in all these places performing on TV and performing gigs when I was young and doing things on a major scale. Even though I was good at this job, being good at it didn't mean that that's what I should be doing. And just because, yeah, you know, I have this safe job and every adult is happy to hear that I'm putting on this business outfit and going to work Monday through Friday, on weekends, I was just desperate to make up for the lost time. And I would try to squeeze, like a lot of people, try to squeeze everything that I lost in the past week, five days into the two weeks on the weekend. At the same time, I would still juggle. Uh, I'd go to the New York City Juggling Club every week. And I would still attend juggling conventions. But yeah, I started to lose patience. And while I was at, I get a call from Big Apple Circus. Uh, her name's Karen McCarty. And she said, hey, you know, I remember you from way back when you were a kid. You were in our outreach programs. Well, listen, those outreach programs are dead, but we'd like to start it brand new with you at the center. We want you to be a part of that. And I said, huh, that sounds great, but I I just, I got this job and it's, you know, I just, I got it and I'm good at it. And sorry, I can't. But then about a year and a half later, I call her back and I say, Hey, remember that job? (laughs) Uh, You still got it? It's just like, what's what's going on? It's like, I want to quit my job. When? (laughs) Uh, About another 10 or 15 minutes. So she said, okay, uh, I'll figure out what I can do. See what I can do. She wound up offering someone else a, a job in like China somewhere. And he took it. He's excited to open up the spot for me. So I really do appreciate that. And that's where juggling as a career started. Like officially career
0: so you wait you got to the point that the job you're just like okay this is soul crushing i gotta get out and that seriously just, is
1: what it was it yeah. was soul crushing. it was um i wasn't being mistreated in any
0: yeah
1: any way where like you know it was a real
0: job who wants a real but, job
1: you know and that's what i thought i wanted you know i was under a lot of pressure from society and family and just culturally speaking. We as a society tend to tell people that doing something that you care about that isn't within the lines of your traditional office job is bad or is like a childish dream. You should grow up and do a real thing. And when they tell you more details, they're saying because it's safe. Mm -hmm. But then what I saw was I saw company layoffs everywhere. I saw downsizing. I saw overseas outsourcing that argument was getting less and less valid. In addition to the fact that I lived and breathed what I was doing with juggling, and I remember that kid who really, really, really loved it. I remember watching, you know, the video of my myself uh, performing on Today Show, and I believed everything I said when I said this is where I belong. And what I saw was that I, I really lost that person and that sense of joy in life because I chose to listen to the naysayers. So I said, all right, there's a reason why many people don't do this, and it's because it's gonna require knowledge itself and hard work that the average person isn't willing to do. Well, guess what, I'm gonna outwork everybody. Hmm. And I sat down, went to the drawing board, created a marketing plan for myself, and figured out different ways that I can make this viable. And it took a while, but eventually the ball started rolling. And the, the experience started growing. The name started popping up more and more as a respectable entertainer. And then from there, next thing I know, I'm in the game for four years. I'm being asked about this and that and booked here and there. And Yeah. So say that to the naysayers.
0: <laughs> it reminds me of a, the story Jim Carrey talks about his father, where he saw his father give up his dreams for security to become like an accountant. And then when his, when his father got laid off from this supposed safe job, you realize that even if you don't go after your dreams, you still can be disappointed, you still can fail, even at a supposed safe career. So why not try, why not risk and dare for that, for that dream, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, when you watch someone perform on stage, especially as a juggler, to us, you see the awe of them performing something that they love in front of a large group. But what we don't see is what it takes to get there. And the talent, isn't just that. you know? There's lots of talented people, and even as a juggler, you're not going against other jugglers. You're going against anything else that a person could be doing with their life at that time. And you have to convince them that seeing you is worth it, or that booking you is worth it, over just having an ordinary walk in the park, or turning on the TV. And then you know, I learned the hard way in my first year into figuring out what it is that people really wanna see and why is it that they're willing to pay for it? And from there, I was able to use a lot of the skills that I wasn't able to use at my old job, like marketing, like business, like other creative parts of what I do. You know, I took a Photoshop class in high school and I don't want to using that a lot as a 24 year old juggler. I was able to take everything within myself, including my resources, people around me with knowledge, friends in the juggling community and circus community, and really collectively create something that wound up helping me really get this thing started.
0: Let's talk about some career highlights. I looked at your credits as you performed at the White House. What, kind, did. Of job did you, what kind of a gig did you have at the White House?
1: It was a Halloween trick-or-treating kind of thing mm. where all of the local Washington DC school kids were invited to come to the White House and come in costume and trick or treat, uh, where President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama would be standing right in the East Lawn and just handing out candies. For her, it would be like, I think she was really into health at the time, so promoting healthy candies. I wouldn't consider those candies, but she did. And during that period, there would be entertainers on the East Lawn as well, as people continued to circle throughout the, the White House campus. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty crazy because we watch a lot of TV, and we use our imagination uh, when it comes to guessing what a president does. But the thing that I noticed was that there was never a time when Barack Obama had five, five seconds to himself. I, it felt like every minute someone was coming up to him whispering something in his ear, one of his staffers. And at the same time, he still has to smile. He still has to, he still has to put on a good face because he's representing more than just himself and his family and the people he knows. In addition, everything he's being told is super duper important. (laughs) And I just can't imagine having a life where my job is so important that it requires so much. And I guess while I was juggling there, I really got a chance to really get a sense of that. And at the end, you know, he comes over and he, he thanks us for our performance. And then he shakes my hand. I say, sorry for the cold hands And he's like,
0: <laughs> you,
1: he says, are you kidding me? Man, I'm just glad you're here. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so, that
0: yeah. sounds great. That sounds great. Yeah, I mean, to be able to shake the president's hand, especially a president you admire and you're happy to be performing for is uh, quite a thrill. huh?
1: Yeah, definitely. He came in when he was campaigning to become, uh, for his first term, he came in and he, he stopped by the, the local rap station. And he was the first presidential candidate to stop by the rap station and uh, give an interview there. So you know the hip hop community loved him here.
0: Yeah, I always found him, I don't know if he could juggle, but I used to watch those uh, White House Correspondents' dinners, I thought, this guy definitely could be a stand-up. His comic timing was, was fantastic. And just his presentation is amazing.
1: I think his work rate will just force him to be, at worst, a five-ball juggler with tricks. At worst.
0: Yeah, he's, he, I'm a big admirer of Obama. But one experience that sounded really cool is you got to train David Blaine for a, a stunt he did. What What was that about?
1: That was really cool and out of nowhere. So uh, David Blaine had a stunt in New York City, and it's always a big part. Pu- public spectacle, the way he does things. That's a big part of his strategy. And what he had there was uh, some sort of cage that had thousands of volts of electricity being put into the cage while he was there. And he was in that cage for 72 hours uh, without sleeping or something like that. And every hour he performed a stunt or a trick.
0: Hmm.
1: And one of those he wanted to be juggling. So he contacted me to help him with that stunt. Yeah, over 10 weeks we worked together and it was really cool watching a magician who's so well-known wind up getting a real joy for juggling.
0: Well, he's a very interesting guy. I got to meet him once at a TED conference. People also say he has a really good live show. Like here's a guy you thought was just sort of a TV performer. So what's he like as a person? I really didn't get to, to meet him very much. Is he a very intense, interesting guy?
1: He's an interesting guy. But um, I guess the difference between his stage persona or his public persona when he performs and uh, his private persona in front of people he knows is that he really knows how to laugh. He tells jokes and he'll laugh. He's he's actually a pretty bubbly guy. Um, That's not something that most people would expect from him being the mysterious magician with secrets. But he's got a whole slew of jokes and he has a real joy for performance and art at a grassroots level. So a good example is he was watching a YouTube video of somebody in Liberia do something. It was this random, random YouTube video of this guy in a village way out in Africa, uh, in Liberia. And David Blaine saw that and he said, not only is this incredible, I gotta learn How this guy does this because this will lead to an amazing magic trick and he's talking to me he's like yo so would you mind if I took like a two-week hiatus on classes so I can fly out to Liberia cuz I got I got to meet this guy and he gets his staff to track this guy because this guy doesn't have an internet connection he was just doing this on camera and someone else with a smartphone uploaded it so he had no idea that this was even accessible to someone in the US and then yeah Just the joy that David Blaine had when he was watching that. It was just, that was really cool. And as a live performer, uh, he was here in New York last week and he performed at a remodeled theater, 3,000 seats. He is an excellent stage performer.
0: Well, I love the tricks he does. I love his his take on sort of Houdini, like you're talking about the promotion. That's so hard, it's so hard to stand out. It's so hard for people to notice, you know, to get noticed here's a guy that took that to the that Houdini level of these, you know, uh, buried in ice, standing motionless and all that kind of, even what, holding his breath for like 13 minutes or something like that.
1: Yeah. yeah, he uh, he performs that on stage. He performed a version of that uh, last week when I saw him perform.
0: You know, so that's one of the main things about our career is this sort of weird opportunities. Now, what do you think about these uh, talent shows? I haven't seen you on like. America's Got Talent, is that something that appeals to you, or what's your take on that?
1: Um, now, this is just me thinking sure. about me, not necessarily talking in general about every, every, what every performer should do. But um, Your take on it, yeah. Yeah, my personal take, at least for me, I didn't see the rewards for me. And America's Got Talent contacts me nearly every year. It's always... A new person. It's always a new production assistant contacting me, talking about how excited they are about potentially bringing me on the show, and I'm I'm used to TV by now, so I understand that that's not necessarily genuine. But I okay. guess what bothers me about America's Got Talent is um, one, they're they're not paying performers, even though there's so much, so much they're gaining from it, and then also they have from a few performers that I've spoken to, they have had, they have taken the opportunity to intentionally make performers look bad just to fill their narrative or their story. And I've heard this by more than one performer that I trust. With that, I don't feel inclined to help their show, if that makes any sense.
0: No, of course, you don't support their, their vision, and their vision is the performer serves a purpose for the story more, more than you know actually helping the performer. It used to be right. if you got on TV, the idea was, we want to have the performer do the best job possible, because right. that's what serves us. Now it's, we want them to be as entertaining as possible, whether it's in a good way or a bad way, doesn't really matter, as long as it's interesting to the public.
1: Yeah, so what I got from them is that uh, they don't necessarily at all times respect the performer's craft and art and that's not necessarily why they want them on the show, and that's not necessarily why they're airing it. Their number one priority is the story that they'd like to tell, compared to, say, The Today Show or Sesame Street, when I was on those shows. They hired me because, actually, The Today Show didn't pay me, but they brought me on because they respected what I did and wanted, like you said, me to perform my best because they wanted my best to be on the show. So with that sentiment, with that mindset, that trickles down from the top all the way to the bottom in America's Got Talent, where then that means that uh, their production assistant has no problem lying to you when they email you. Sure. Same thing goes with the people running the auditions. They have no problem being disrespectful. And that that was unique for me. So I've gone as far as to even audition uh, once about maybe eight years ago. Uh, and one of their many things in New York where they do what is what they believe is their red carpet treatment, which is instead of waiting outside in a long line for you to uh, hopefully get your chance to perform and audition for them, when you're recruited talent, you skip all that and they bring you right in at a scheduled time. But I did uh what,
0: I, did, I did an audition like that once, where they okay. brought you in, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but what, For me, it was like the only game in town. It was sort of like, well, what's it become? You know, it went from The Tonight Show and all these comedy shows, like what's it become? Well, now it's America's Got Talent and the Gong Show. It seems like you yeah. yeah, two variety-oriented shows.
1: For now, but yeah, what I noticed is when I was, I guess I was writing, I was filling out paperwork for them, and so the the understanding that I got, even in the paperwork, was they were trying so hard to find a story where they're asking questions about your personal life and your past and basically trying to steer you in a way where this was your lifetime dream, or they're trying to steer you into presenting a struggle in life so that they could... Push the struggle, and I, I didn't feel like that was honest. So because of that, I didn't hand in my paperwork.
0: But hmm. sounds like you don't need it either. It, it seems to me yeah. like you're a smart guy. You got good marketing going on. You got a good niche. You know you have a unique perspective, a unique package you're presenting. How's it going out there? What, what kind of uh, what kind of career you're having now? Are you staying busy? What's work like in New York now? And who are your who are your contemporaries out there? Who are you competing with?
1: <laughs> well. My competition these days, my biggest competition these days is, is YouTube, where uh, I got to get people to, uh, I have to convince people that it's not just as good when you're looking at it on a four inch screen on your phone. This being live in front of you is where it's at right now. Enjoy the now. That is a struggle that a lot of us live entertainers are facing. So I've been embracing that by bringing that into my material. Here in New York, um, I've been living in Boston for four years, and then last year, I moved to New York. I was in Boston for four years, my wife got accepted into med school in Boston, so we moved to right. Boston I was in Boston for four years. So now living back in New York, uh, it's a bit different, because when I was living in New York the first time, a lot of my work was teaching. I had my own juggling classes, in addition to work with uh, the Big Apple Circus and their program, I had my own program where I was teaching juggling to young jugglers. And uh, my students got really good. You know, uh, Sam Schiff was a student of mine. Bennett Bennett Santora uh, was a student of mine. I taught him how to juggle. There was, uh, you know, I have another kid who's uh, doing his fourth year of the Circus Mercus tour, Aaron Schondorf and a number of other people in my program. But then when I moved to Boston, I had to leave my classes behind. And then uh, what I learned there is that, crap, the teaching work doesn't pay very much here. So I'm gonna have to perform. I do know how to perform, but I have to perform full time now. Where are the venues to perform? And one of the biggest venues to perform was Fan Hall Marketplace, which is a street performing venue.
0: And
1: it's one one of the top, if not the top street performing venue in the country. The problem was I've never street performed before. Like the closest I've gotten to street performing was when I'm paid to do a street style show in the street, but I'm still getting paid. That's not the same busking where you show up with zero and then you ask people to donate money into your hat. Very different. So learning how to do that was a lot of work. And uh, having talent doesn't necessarily translate into being a successful street performer and, What was great was that the people who were on paper as my competitors, and that is the other Faneuil Hall Street performers, they actually were the most helpful in helping me get started. I got into Faneuil Hall, uh, I had to audition to get in, and I got in my first year of auditioning. And they, instead of showing seniority or resentment, they were the most helpful. And I gotta say, uh, major big up to them. But when I moved back to New York, uh, four years later, after working on my show so much, I could have come back here and talk again the way I used to, but now I do my show.
0: What do you mean, you, you, you currently perform a silent, just you'd like to perform to music, that's your, that's your, that's your thing?
1: Uh, there are musical bits in my show, but my show, if you were to define it, would be a comedy juggling show. There'll be dance pieces uh, with juggling infused into them, in certain bits of the show, but a lot of my show is just telling a lot of jokes.
0: That's hmm. so you like basketball dribbling. That's, that's something you picked up at the same time as juggling. I see you do that in your show as well.
1: No, basketball predates juggling. I learned how to play basketball when I was seven years old. And I used to always wanted to play with the big kids, but the big kids didn't want me to play. They don't want to play with an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old. So that meant I'm stuck with a ball and I'm dribbling by myself. So I got really good at dribbling. And then I learned how to dribble too. And then when I was 12 and learned how to juggle, I said, hmm. Let me try dribbling three. And I learned how to dribble three. While I'm at Faneuil Hall, there's a guy, his, uh, his stage name is Alakazam. Excellent sure. comedy contortionist yeah. juggler guy. One of the best. He, yeah, he's amazing. And he said, hey, you know what would be really good for your show? Can you dribble a basketball if you did some tricks with a basketball? I'm like, are you kidding me? He's like, yeah, no, 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 I'm not kidding. You know, if you did like tricks with one or, you know, more basketballs. I'm like, yo... I've been able to do that since before I've been able to juggle. He says, oh, my God. So then uh, basketball in my show is uh, only two years old. But now it's, you know, it's a big part of my show.
0: Right, right. And how, how much do you practice every day? What's your practice routine like?
1: Well, right now my practice routine is zero. <laughs> I recently, <laughs> found out, recently found out I broke my elbow. A yeah, you month thought ago.
0: you had tendinitis for a couple of years, right, or something like that?
1: No, like, yeah, it was sometime last year, I might have broke, or, or months ago, early in the year, I banged my elbow, I, I swear it's from a time when I was working out, and I banged my elbow super hard, and it hurt like crazy, and it, it took a while for it to feel better. I think even at its best, it got to about maybe 95%, but was still sensitive, and then finally, after doing some shows in upstate New York, and then doing some shows in Boston, I then stayed in Boston for a few days, played some basketball, and I just cannot shoot. And my shot's getting worse throughout the game, and I'm getting that Ray John Rondo treatment where he catches the ball at the three-point line, and his defender just moves back and just gives him six feet to shoot it. I was getting that treatment. So I said, man, this hurts. Let me go and get this checked out. And I went to my regular doctor, my primary care physician, and he did some tests, and was like, I suspect this is tendonitis. He said he's gonna send me to a specialist, but then uh, I think a a week later I saw a specialist, and right away she's like, "I have a feeling your elbow is broken. That bone doesn't look right. I'm gonna send you some X-rays immediately." She sees the X-rays, is like, "Oh, yep, there goes a break. Gonna get you to an MRI just to make sure." And yeah, <laughs> turned out I broke my elbow. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, the good part is I get to avoid surgery. Right,
0: right.
1: Yeah, I get to avoid surgery and. Uh, I just have to supposedly, and I put this in serious air quotes, rest. So that means I'm obviously going to juggle. I'm going to be in Ohio next week. I'm doing three shows a day for six days straight. So I can't rest. But what I I do have to refrain, at least for the next six to eight weeks, from working out, playing sports, and uh, juggling that's not for my show. So, yeah, I have not been practicing over the past week. So
0: but you a fair gig? It, you do like, you do like uh, state and county fairs? Is that one of your markets?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've actually been quite successful doing that. So it's really cool because, and, and thankfully street performing taught me this, I've gotten really comfortable in being in situations that I can't control. So a good example is I'm doing my show and then somebody says something or does something weird. I can add a funny tidbit write my show or address that particular thing immediately. I don't have to ignore it while I'm doing a circus routine per se and then leave stage and that's it. So what's really cool is that I can express more of who I am because I'm mic'd up and because I have the freedom to tell a joke. And I think what's the best part about it is that after all these years of doing shows and just generally being, I'm generally a funny guy when people meet me but Being a funny person or having a funny idea versus telling a joke aren't exactly the same thing. And so I got some training uh, from a very good Boston comedian while I was there named Dana J. Bine. I took some comedy lessons with him in terms of just how to construct a funny idea into a joke. And now in my show, I can make jokes at will, including the jokes that I've already made for the show. And I I feel like that's a major freeing thing. And that's helped me a lot with these kinds of gigs in terms of they want someone who's personable. They want someone who relates to the crowd and makes the show more immersive. And that's an advantage that I have,
0: thankfully. I think they want someone that people can come back and see. So that if you're spontaneous and they, I saw you three times, every time was a little bit different. I think they want people to be original and kind of uh, not cookie cutter. And it's easier to be original
1: if you're being, if you have the freedom to be yourself. I feel with me specifically, I mean, I love, and and this is what my comedy mentor taught me. He said, it's okay to mention the elephant in the room, especially when it has to do with yourself. So he said, what is it about yourself that's particularly ridiculous? And I said, okay, well, I'm a black guy who plays a white sport. And he laughed like crazy. (laughs) He said, yeah. definitely, definitely point that out. And then he said, what else? He said, said, uh, I look like a shrunken down, poor version of Kobe Bryant. So he said that, put that in the show too. And then from there, he said, once you bring those things out and address the elephant in the room, people relax because it feels like you spoke in their mind and like one of them is on stage. So keep
0: tapping into that. Smart. That's. I mean, it's a very relatable thing to think about is what are they perceiving about me and how can I use that for comedy as opposed to ignore it or, or try to, like you say, ignore the elephant in the room. How do I make it funny? How do I entertain these people?
1: Yeah, what's crazy is that, of course, at least specifically in circus, due to the whole... Thing of circus being ridiculed so often. When you hear negative comments about politicians, it's typically referred to as a circus. So with that, the back, the reverse happens where circus is definitely demanding they be taken seriously. And you see that in their performance and they work really hard. But for me, I do kind of find it absurd that, <laughs> I, get, that I do this for a living, that this is what people are paying to see me do. And I feel because I'm mic'd up, it's okay to make fun of that. And with that, they get a a better sense of my point of view, the inspiration for my material, and the reason why it's there. Uh, It's because I have the freedom to talk to them. I have a freedom to be myself and make fun of what I do. And I feel like that's the most empowering thing about the way my show has been going over the past few years.
0: And where do you see the future? We're pretty much at the end of our podcast. This has gone pretty quick, our, our hour together. and It's been really nice talking with you. Where do you see the next few years going in your career?
1: The next few years, I see myself uh, obviously doing what I do now, but bigger, but then also I see myself getting more theatrical, not necessarily leaving what I do to just only do things in theaters, but I've been given a grant by the Bindlestiff uh, Family Circus. It's the 1st of May grant. And what they do is they provide an arts grant for people who have variety show ideas. So with that, I'd like to take what I do to be expressed in a form of theater. That doesn't mean that I just do my show inside of a theater, but I'd really like to exploit the differences and advantages that a theater can bring as opposed to, say, doing my show in front of just the general variety scene. So I see myself doing that as well. Also, um, with time and, and trends, things are subject to change. So I definitely see myself taking more courses on, um, on business and seminars and things like that. Just learning a bit more about how markets are changing and getting a heads up and maybe an, an early step into the way people are willing to focus their eyeballs which is a big part of what drives my material.
0: And do you see a time uh, beyond juggling? Is this something you want to do? Uh, do you see sort of a lifespan? Like, oh, I'd like to do this for another 10 years. Or do you see this sort of playing out uh, the rest of your life? Is there a sort of an overwhelming longer term plan?
1: I don't see myself stopping juggling. Now, there could be amendments to that whole thing where maybe a certain type of juggling I might do over something else. But juggling will always be will always be part, if not all, of what I do. I remember meeting up with Dave Finnegan uh, earlier this year. He's above 70, and he's a major, major staple in terms of the juggling community globally. And he's helped a lot of a lot of professionals, including me, with his example and with his advice. And he's like, "Yeah, I can still juggle. I still get juggling gigs, and I'm above 70." So unlike say gymnastics or basketball jugglers have the freedom to go out and still do what they do now i can make adjustments to how i do it and what helps is that because more of what i'm doing is comedy based these days if i continue in that direction i have no problem keeping it up just as long as i'm still funny
0: <laughs> well i really look forward to seeing what you, where you go with your career and i hope uh, our paths cross again i haven't seen you uh in person, it's been a few years, but I've always enjoyed your company and I like your outlook and your attitudes towards juggling life. And I hope to uh, see you go on to big success and I hope we have some time to spend together in person sometime.
1: Hey man, that'd be great. You know, um, who knows? We might be booked for the same thing.
0: I hope so. And then we can uh, go to some, some hip hop concerts and I can show you my b-boying and my breakdancing, dancing and uh, I can show you my swag.
1: I will pay $100 to watch <laughs> your head spin.
0: All right. I don't know if you'll see. Well, I'll take the hundred bucks. I don't know about the head spinning, but I could use the hundred bucks. Hey, Paris, thank you so much, man. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Paris, the hip hop juggler for being on Drop Everything, episode number 60. Thanks, Paris. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything, podcast number 60. My conversation with Paris, the hip hop juggler. Thank you, Paris, and best wishes in your life and career as you do the juggling thing out there on the East Coast. Let's thank the IJA, International Jugglers Association, by going to juggle.org and joining the greatest group of jugglers in the world. Hope you all have fun at the festival, and I'll see you all next year in Indiana. Buy my book at Amazon.com, buy my toys, get some personal coaching. Most important, drop everything except when you're juggling.